every single one of us at some point, 14, 15, 13, had something happen that sort of stopped us dead in our tracks. And if we can use this work of journaling and, and with the very specific prompts, if we can reveal some of that and heal some of that in the, in the revelation of it, we've made some progress as a, as a humanity, as a civilization. I think there's a lot of value in that. That was Elena Brower, and I'm Henry Winslow. You're listening to Dharma Talk. Dharma Talkers, I've got some news to share, some bittersweet news. I've made the decision to bring this podcast to a close. Dharma Talk has been such a gift to me. I've been able to have intimate conversations with role models, teachers, and sources of inspiration for me, myself. If the podcast has moved you even a fraction of how much it has impacted me, then I can also say it has been a form of service to you, all of you who've been listening over the past two years, or even just recently. So why end it? Well, Dharma Talkers, this podcast has always been a labor of love. One that is actually quite costly in funds and energy. Now, while the expenses alone have never prohibited me from pulling this thread, finances remain a factor. But more significant than all of that is the sense of completeness I feel around the whole project. Of course, there's no shortage of inspirational yogis out there, and I could keep having these conversations weekly ad infinitum. But at this point, I am feeling called to direct my energy elsewhere. Where? I'm not entirely sure, but I do know that space needs to be created for the path to be revealed. So with that being said, we are in the countdown now. The final show will be fittingly episode 108, which means this is the fifth to last Dharma talk. Now, before we get into it, if you're practicing from home these days or, or always, I'm here for you. Check out my yoga app simply called Henry Yoga in the Apple App Store or at henryyoga.com. The app offers a 40-day curriculum of Hatha Vinyasa classes and technical workshops, each only 40 minutes in length, so you can fit them in no matter your schedule or location. Quick note on location, the iOS app is currently available in the US only, but the fully functional web app is available the world over at henryyoga.com. There's lots of free content for you to check out through the app or online, so have a taste and see how you like it. And if you'd like to go all in and get the full program, then we're offering a special discount at this time, given the circumstances. You can enter the discount code HOMEPRACTICE to get lifetime access to the full Henry Yoga app for 25 bucks. Okay, so redeem that offer at henryyoga.com. So I mentioned finances earlier, money. Do you want money? Why do you if you do? What's the point of raking in the dough? Well, my guest this week, Elena Brower, opens up very candidly about why, as a young, fresh-faced, and enterprising yoga teacher, she wanted to make money. She saw that the wealthy people around her had access to something that she craved, a luxury that she could not afford at her current pay grade, 
but felt determined to reach. No, it wasn't a fancy house or expensive car or even an experience of travel and comfort. The carrot that pulled her forward was philanthropy. She wanted to be able to give generously to support causes and change that mattered to her. And in pursuing the financial freedom that opened the gate to philanthropy, Elena discovered what fundamentally accounts for our success in business or any other endeavor, connection. What kind of connection? You'll learn much more about all of that in this conversation coming right up. But first, let's thank our sponsors. This episode is brought to you in part by Warrior Bridge NYC. Warrior Bridge is an interdisciplinary movement studio in downtown Manhattan, offering classes in yoga, acro yoga, handstands, and flexibility training. Their classes are skillfully designed, featuring anatomy-informed warm-ups and progressions, drawing from and blending different yoga and movement modalities. While the offerings are diverse, what's constant is an emphasis on practicing in a way that honors where you're coming from and where you're trying to go. Warrior Bridge offers a full schedule of weekly classes, weekend workshops with visiting instructors, and teacher training programs, the next wave of which will be held this summer in NYC. First up, anatomy and movement teacher training from July 15th to 25th, led by Sean Langhouse and Emily Lazinski. Sean was a past guest on Dharma Talk, of course. This training is designed for both practicing and aspiring teachers who want to better understand anatomy and how the body works, as well as Warrior Bridge's unique training methodology around yoga, handstand, flexibility training, prehab, and injury prevention. And the next training will be their Acro Warrior Teacher Training from July 27th to August 6th. This is New York City's only Acro Yoga Teacher Training and is all about immersing yourself in the Acro practice and acquiring the skills to safely and intelligently lead Acro Yoga classes and practice. Learn more and register at warriorbridge.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Yoga East Austin. Coming up in May is an event I'm really looking forward to because it will be a first. In May, I'll be heading back to Yoga East Austin in Texas, this time to practice yoga with Anna Forrest and Jose Calarco. Anna and Jose were previous guests on the show and one of my favorite interviews of 2019. I enjoyed speaking with them about how they have integrated music and ceremony into their yoga classes and workshops but mostly Anna's approach to using expansive and pinpoint breathing to heal specific areas of trauma. Her system of yoga, coupled with Jose's passion for music and ceremony, set an intention, or as Jose would say, an invocation for a nurturing and spiritual practice. Many of my favorite teachers and peers, and even past guests of the show like Jared McCann and Benjamin Sears, have all attributed much of their growth to time they spent learning from Anna. I know even today, parts of my practice are bits and pieces of wisdom Anna has taught to someone that I have learned from. I'm super stoked to be with the transcendent and legendary Anna and Jose on May 8th through 10th, back with my friends at Yoga East Austin. Spots are filling quick, so be sure to check out yogaeastaustin.com slash forest 
yoga and use promo code Henry Wins to save on all four workshops Anna and Jose are teaching. Once again, that's yogaeastaustin.com slash F-O-R-R-E-S-T-Y-O-G-A and use code Henry Wins to save on the workshops. Okay, now let me introduce my guest more formally. Elena Brower, at Elena Brower on Instagram, is a mother, artist, author, speaker, double diamond leader with doTERRA, and a teacher of yoga and meditation since 1999. Her first book, Art of Attention, has now been translated into six languages, and her second book, Practice You, a Journal, is now a bestseller from Sounds True. She's contributed to Yoga Journal, Yoga International, Huffington Post, Mind Body Green, and more. Her work spans multiple genres and aims to bring us closer to ourselves. Dharma Talkers, if this podcast speaks to you and you want to learn more about Elena, then go to dharmatalk.show and type Elena in the search bar. That's E-L-E-N-A. And there you'll find all the notes, highlights with timestamps, and links for this episode. And if you're looking for something to read, Elena is an established author. You can read her books or either of the books that she recommends, all of which are listed up at henrywins.com books, along with every other book recommendation I've ever received on this podcast. Now, without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Elena Brower. Elena Brower on Dharma Talk. It has been such a long time coming. We met back at the Three Jewels in New York some time ago, and uh, I'm so excited to catch up with you. Uh, mm. How are you doing when what's new? Oh, it's nice to be here. That was a long time ago, and I'm really happy we finally made this happen. Yeah, Me too. Thank, you. thank you so much. Me too. Yeah. Well, let's dive straight in. I always open these podcast conversations with the same first question, which is kind of a doozy, but it tends to uh, set the stage for the rest of the conversation. So mm -hmm. the question is, what does the word Dharma mean to you? And what is your Dharma as you understand it today? Nice one. A doozy indeed. Dharma to me is the next obvious thing. That's what Dharma means to me. And it keeps me in a very clear relationship to presence and to what the present moment is offering me. Uh, I could go on about Dharma being, you know, what it is that I'm doing professionally or personally or familially in any way, but I think it's simply the next obvious thing that needs to happen. This is an interesting interpretation and one that I have not heard before, but I, I think I have a hunch of where you're going with this, but Please, please elaborate. What exactly do you mean by obvious when you talk about the next obvious thing? There are, dish there are dishes in the sink. Else. Like there are dishes in the sink. They have to get done. My dharma right now is householder. I see. Um, there is a series of phone calls that need to be made to a certain part of my team, a certain number of leaders on my team. Great. That's the next thing. That's my dharma after that. So there's never one dharma, I don't feel. I feel like there are many different aspects of life that need to be tended to. And yeah, I, I, I don't I don't want to pigeonhole myself because I have so many different things that I do. And each one of those things enriches the other things that I do. 
Well, I like that outlook because I, th- I feel that if you are open to all of these different things that need to be done and whatever role you may be inhabiting in that moment, then it puts you in a position, a mental position that you're never beyond or too good for something. And that keeps you mentally flexible. Yeah, Do you that's find fine. That's very nice. Very, uh, very astute. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and do you, um, how do you feel about planning for the future? Like, does that factor into your, whether it's understanding of Dharma or just the way that you operate in life? Because if you are looking always at the next obvious thing, of course, there's a benefit to being fully present for what you're doing. But how do we balance that? How do we reconcile that with having a broader ambition or a goal for something that you're trying to create in a long term? Right. I am definitely a planner. I have a plan to build a house. I have a plan to save a certain amount of money. I have a plan to tend to my son's high school education. You know, I I think that planning is important, but knowing also that these plans could definitely change in any moment Mm -hmm. is, is a part of that flexibility that you spoke about. I think, you know, we spend too much time projecting, rehashing, regretting, and all those things take us away from our dharma. And if we can sort of stay in this present possibility of this definition of dharma, what's the next thing, with an, a, a wise and efficient plan for where we're going to be in two years and five years and ten years, I think you have a nice, steady, healthy balance. Um, but I think both are required. Talk to me about your journey to understanding this principle, this guiding principle for your life. You've been practicing yoga and teaching yoga for a long time. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you can weave the story of, of your yoga into that understanding, or maybe it came from something else. But let's spin the clock back and talk to me a little bit about your origin story to get you where you are now. I am a freshman at Cornell University, and I have to take a PE credit. And I believe I signed up for some sort of martial art class but the beginning and end was yoga, meditation. Mm-hmm. And I fell madly in love. And it wasn't for a number of years until I took my next yoga class, which was my college boyfriend's mom and sister taking me to Alan Finger's studio on 56th Street. We're going back to uh-huh. 1993 <laughs> or four. And I took a class with his teacher, uh, one of his teachers there, Michelle. She was captivating, generous, kind, present. And that was the end of me. I was sold on yoga and I continued to practice there and learn as much as I possibly could and take workshops and all kinds of whatever I could get my hands on until 1997 when I decided to take a teacher training with Cindy Lee, who was then just about to open Om Yoga way back on 14th Street um, before it moved over to, I believe that was 4th Avenue or Lafayette, somewhere over there. And I could not have had a better education. 
from there, I took many trainings with many different teachers, among them uh, Rod Stryker, uh, Naveen Mishan of Katona Yoga, Abby Galvin, same, you know, Shiva, Sean, Eric Schiffman, <laughs> everyone. And got this very sort of comprehensive, full spectrum understanding of what the practice is about. And I still don't think I know what the practice is about, but I certainly learned from many different voices. Kia Miller, Tommy Rosen, Vinnie Marino. I spent a lot of time in LA learning. Mm -hmm. And I keep hearing about him because, you know, I just got to LA. Oh, you did? You moved? Yeah. Amazing. I moved, yeah. Go take his class. But He's yeah, like, I'm gonna. I'm definitely gonna make that a priority. But I didn't mean to cut you off. I just felt like I needed to tell you that. No, I'm glad to know. I was sitting here thinking you were down the way. Um, Eric, Vinny and I took Eric Schiffman's training together. I think this was like 1998 or nine. I'm sure I still have the notebook. And <laughs> we could not have had a better time. We were just in the car between the classes, going, "How are we ever going to teach yoga for a living? I'm never going to be able to do this." How is this going to go? I, I remember distinctly. Anyway, the whole, I think the whole scope of these 20 years or so of training and, and learning have taught me that the, the vulnerability and the real dynamic relations that I'm having with myself, with other people, my work, my studies, anything, they're all a form of the practice. Everything is a form of the practice. If I can keep the, the sattvic, tranquil mind that I always end practices, find myself swimming in that mind, if I can keep that as, as much as consistently as possible, I'm in great shape. Everything benefits, my family, my work, everything benefits. And that, I think, is where it was all going in the first place, you know, toward that. Meaning you are seeking that. Well, yes, unbeknownst to me. Right. I was only seeking, you know, some sort of peace in my body, peace in my mind, a way to get sober eventually because weed was always a factor and a thing for me until I got sober five, six years ago. Mm -hmm. And it did turn out that yoga was going to be not only the catalyst, but also the way that I sustain myself in that transformation. So this sattvic tranquil mind, of course we can, uh, we can extrapolate how that would affect every aspect of our lives. If, if we're able to see through you know, through clear eyes, then our delusions don't make us make poor decisions. Yeah. Why was it that um, that only five years ago you changed your mind about smoking weed? I'm just curious because you know you've been practicing for a long time, and this is not a judgment. You know, I I do sometimes, and plenty of other yogis do, and some tend to find that it helps their practice, and some have a different relationship to it. So, what changed your mind about that? Oh, I was just sick of myself saying that today would be the last day. Ah. Uh, yeah, it was so you hard. had already decided you want you didn't think it served you. No, no, it was very, very hard for me. I had a I had a real addiction. It was a daily thing in the morning, and it would never be when I was teaching. It would always be many, many, many hours before 
or after I would work. I would never, you know, use it when I was teaching, but boy, was it pervasive and compelling and uh, a, a real distinct issue for me. And eventually I just realized all of my, you know, every limb of my body and every sensory organ was like, you must stop now. And finally (laughs) it came to that. And it was like from one day to the next, I was finally ready to grow up and let this thing go. And the moment I did, everything else blossomed in my life in a beautiful way. You could say that maybe that was the next obvious thing at that time. No question about it. You could break down any moment of any life and think, okay, so this was the moment when X happened. Was that your dharma at the time? Yes, it was. And then this happened. Was that your dharma at the time? Yes, it was. You know? Totally. I'm with you 100% on that. I I like to say that it's impossible to not be in your dharma because people talk about, you know, being in alignment with your dharma or not. But is there any other choice? Like the thing that's in front of you. Yeah, I know a lot of people who are working out of congruence with who they actually are and what their actual skill set is, for sure. Yes, I understand that and I and I see that. But what I mean is because I've been there as well. You know, I, I've worked out of congruence with my own values, but being in that situation was what illuminated the path and caused me to get to the point, like a breaking point where I had to reflect and that allowed me to step out. That makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. I get that. I get that. I don't know. I think, I think you know, you can kind of tell if your sort of dominant lens is one of, congruence or, or, or self-worth, you know, you're, you're probably in your Dharma. You're probably next moment in your Dharma again, probably in five minutes from now, you'll be in it again. Mm -hmm. But if the lens is one of, you know, worthlessness or, or, um, failure or fear, you might not actually live in accordance with that next obvious thing with your dharma and you you mm. might you might swim away from that until you're able to get back to that and for me especially in my family uh for my kid who's now 13 for my relationship with my boyfriend for my relationships with my friends and definitely in my work mindset is everything everything you know for me, it's like confidence is not something that you, um, you, you're born with. It's not something you're gifted with. It's not some sort of secret talent. Sure. If your parents raise you, right. You probably have a little more self-worth, but confidence to me is I read this in the Harvard business review a long time ago and I never forgot it. Confidence is an expectation of a positive outcome. And I feel like that relates to this concept of Dharma where it's really a moment to moment. Okay. This, this moment just gave me some new information. I have a choice. And now this moment is giving me some new information and I have a choice. And whatever the dominant lens is that I'm looking through, my dear friend, Ali Bogard had this in one of her courses, the dominant lens concept. And I've never forgotten that either, but whatever that dominant lens is, that's how I'm going to see. 
Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I'm going to follow when I go forward with the next choice that I make. You know, how am I interpreting? What am I expecting? Right, right. Like our, our mind is a filter. So if it's, if the lens is polished or even rose tinted, that sometimes has a negative connotation because it implies delusion. But I think you know what I mean. If we are looking through a lens that sees positivity, then we're going to not only be in a positive frame of mind, but actually take positive actions that lead toward that positive outcome. Yes. Yes. The sattvic mind of which I spoke, it's really about, you know, equanimity. Like how, how in this moment again, can I find that state? act, do what I need to do. You know, if there's fierceness required, if there's listening required, whatever's required, how do I get back to equanimity amidst that delivering what's required? Mm -hmm. It seems to me that your practice is primarily oriented around maintaining a certain mental disposition. So I know that you've studied with all sorts of different teachers. You, You mentioned many of them. What does your practice look like now, practically speaking? How do you go about maintaining your mind in a, in a way that supports you? I have a meditation practice, a daily meditation practice, 20 minutes with my mala and my mantra. Um, it's the most important part of my day, really. And I usually do a pretty clear breath practice that involves... Um, in my teacher's sort of uh, work, he calls it the act of stillness. But I, I, it's sort of a mishmash of a few things. And this way I can clear out my system of any, let's say, residue from the night, from the day before, from any assumptions or conclusions that I might be making about possibilities in that moment and start fresh. And it's the most important part of my day. From there, my yoga practice happens. It's usually from 15 minutes to an hour. I'll stretch. I'll roll out my mat. I'll listen to something. I won't listen to something. I'll open a notebook and go through that. I'll write in a notebook and design a practice for yoga glow if I'm inspired um, because I go there about three, four times a year to film and I like to that. I like to have that be my actual practice. Like I don't, I can't make things up (laughs) for camera. Um, Yeah. So yeah, that, that's kind of how it is. And I also now have a, I have three times a week, I go see a a personal trainer, getting my body nice and strong. I'm turning 50 this year and that feels really important. Congratulations. That's that's an important milestone. It does feel, (laughs) it feels so good. So you do your meditation in the morning, I take it? Meditation and mantra? Exactly. First thing in the morning, I just go out. Usually everyone's, my son and my boyfriend are sleeping in the bedroom. So I'll leave the bedrooms and I'll go out to, even though I have a puja in my bedroom, which I like to sit at in the afternoons, um, I'll go out to the living room and sit on on the big chair and bring my mala and just get all snugly, wrap myself up in a blanket and sit for 20 minutes or so. And what does your family think of your yoga practice and the priority that you put on it? They don't really see it. They they don't really see my practice because it happens before they wake up. So 
Okay. But I think for them, so they you only know, see the effects. It's a part of our. It's a. <laughs> yeah, it's a part of the fabric of our lives, though. I think, and they they appreciate that for sure. It, it's it's led to, you know, combined with a lot of the other training that I've had, I've had really stellar training from a group called the Handel Group that helps me with every sort of interpersonal reactivity of any kind. Um, the combination of all the things that I've learned leads to a, a pretty well-oiled family. And we communicate very well, even when things get challenging. You know, I think they appreciate the fact that the practice is sort of the underpinning of how we relate to each other. And what have you learned about your practice or learned about yoga or learned about the next obvious thing from being a mother? Oh my God. That would be like many hours. <laughs> Someday it'll be a book. Um, well, my vulnerability is actually really important. Um, I think the goal, if there were to be a goal in parenting is that we have a, a really honest culture around here where a family, we have love for each other, even when we're having a hard time with each other, we have respect for each other. Even when we lose respect for each other, it's still, you know, the very ground on, upon which we stand. Um, and I think ultimately we're just here to help each other acquire that state of mind acquire meaning sort of reveal is I think a better word reveal that state of mind that's already existing within each of us that sort of sweet tranquil equanimous mind um, we're here to help each other get to that point within the context of this household so that we can then go you know my son can go create a household that has flavors and shades of this this good communication and, and, and sweet outlook responsiveness. I asked that question because I know that you are coming out soon with a follow-up to the journal that you released some time ago called practice you, which yeah. as I understand is, you know, a, a journal that can help us guide ourselves toward revealing that state of mind, but being you is specifically geared toward a younger audience, which maybe was influenced by your relationship with your son. I don't, I don't know, but, um, talk to us a little bit about that. Share, share more about that project. So practice you was the first journal and it came out a couple of years ago and we've already sold over a hundred thousand copies. It's, it's a very widespread, um, aid and tool in a lot of trainings, schools, juvenile detention centers, recovery settings, healing settings of all kinds. <clears throat> and we found that a lot of kids find it useful as often as, you know, in yoga teacher trainings, adults are finding it incredibly useful to kind of set free a lot of the things that were hidden to uh, get to know oneself a little bit better my publisher actually presented to me that he would like to have a follow-up to practice you for the young adult market. 
And I said, sure, no problem. And as I was making the book, because I paint all the pages and I write out all the the copy, as I was making the book, I realized it's not just for young adults. It's for all of us. And it can dominate the young adult market. Sure. You know, it's just like practice. You kind of became this entity all its own and people have been using it and using it and using it and buying so many copies to gift and to share and to do it again. This book is in a way it's a little more sophisticated and in a way it's perfect for young adults. I feel of any age, (laughs) like we're all in some way, every single one of us, at some point, 14, 15, 13, 18, had something happen that sort of stopped us dead in our tracks. And if we can use this work of journaling and and with the very specific prompts that I've designed and gleaned from all of the luminaries with whom I've studied over time, books I've read, if we can reveal some of that and heal some of that in in the revelation of it, we've made some progress as a, as a humanity, as a civilization. I think there's a lot of value in that. So we're still actually deciding if we are going to have a subtitle that points to young adults. I sort of love the subtitle being you a journal for young adults of all ages, but Mm -hmm. you know, I think that that's so relevant, but let's see what happens. We don't, I don't actually know. And by the time this comes out, we'll probably have a, a conclusion, but suffice to say, it'll come out by the end of 2020. And I'm very, very proud of the work. I've done a lot of work in the last several months on it. And, uh, I feel like it's some of the best work of my life. Can you give us a little bit of a teaser? Like, for example, what is one of the prompts that might be included in it? I'm going to pull up the galette in front of me so I can pick my favorite one. The galette is just kind of a, a sample of all the pages of all the chapters, one or two spreads from each chapter. Oh, this is a nice one. <clears throat> This is when I gave myself peace. This is when I took it away. This is when I let someone else take it away. This is how I give myself peace today. You know, when you think about that, there's also to the side uh, a really beautiful quote by Cleo Wade. Your peace belongs to you alone. Only you can give it to yourself and only you can take it away. And I mean, even now, when I look at this, most of the work that I do, I love to go back and actually take part in it as a student, because I've, it's not coming from me at all. When I say the work that I do, it's like the work of every single teacher I've ever had. It's Mm -hmm. not me. And so when I go back and I do the work that I've set forth for other people to do, it's always so profound because it's really not coming from me. And I love doing it. When I look at this series of four prompts across two pages, I think, wow, what a, what a wonderful gift to give to a young person of 16, a young person of 66 to consider how I gave myself peace today. 
you know? Yeah, I, I completely understand and relate to what you're saying about the content of, of one's teaching. You know, I think it's a it's the culmination of what we learn from our teachers and pass on because there's, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. We're just sharing in our own unique way and perhaps painting something with a different lens or different perspective. But also, we tend to share the things that have been particularly useful for us. And many times, they continue to be useful for us. It's not like you do it once and it's over. Right. So true. There's another one. um, This page I particularly love. It says altar. A beautiful watercolor sort of sphere that I've... Uh, ripped in four pieces and then glued onto the page in four pieces. So it sort of looks like a big round, um, almost like the four directions. It's hard to explain, but it says altar, a sacred space in which I make offerings of my art and my prayers. And then on the facing page, it says, I am the altar. This is what I place here. And the drawing, the painting rather, is of it's almost like a really rudimentary house, like a kid would draw with a triangular roof and a little box mm-hmm. for the house. Um, the eye and the altar is inside of the roof, which is a purple triangle. And I feel like we so often forget to choose what influences we place in our lives, who, where, what, when, what are the substances, what are the foods, what are the friends, the places, the things we watch, the things we read. We forget to choose what we place here. And I feel like this is one of those prompts that yeah, we just brings get... us back to a, a reminder that, we have, yeah, we have choices. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it's very easy to just slip into uh receptivity or just getting into emotion that has uh like you're just following the the snowball that that picks up and builds momentum and allowing it to take shape without any agency that's exactly right so what is the intended like how do you use the journal like it, it seems to be like the way you're describing it, that it's a very artistic presentation. Do you write in it? Do you add to the imagery? Do you draw in it? Or do you reflect? All. Every, every and all. Yes. Okay. It's all of the above. Some people buy two copies so that they can have one that they keep clean. <laughs> it's the funniest thing ever. <laughs> I see. And then one that they actually draw in. It's so sweet. You can't even imagine. Off Very often I'll be anywhere in the world and people will bring me two copies. And I'll say, okay, this is the one that I'm never going to write in. So sign this yeah. one like extra special. This is the <laughs> one that I've already written in. You can just sign it on page 13. You know, I don't care where. Yeah, this is the workbook. Right. It's really <laughs> so sweet. Oh my God, it's so sweet. There's another page, beautiful. This one was influenced heavily by Agnes Martin. I'm a dear fan of Agnes Martin. Um, And on this page, there are lots of horizontal lines, broken and full. And it says, when we fully give our attention, we experience both power and rest. Power and rest. Yes. And so you're invited. And there's all this blank space on the page with color fields and 
blank white space. And you're invited to, to think about this. Like what happens when I fully give my attention? That's true. I do experience both total power and complete softness. And wow, what a, what a gift that is. And to just write about that for a little while, think about that, Mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I like how open-ended these questions or prompts are. It's not even really fair to characterize them necessarily as questions. That's, that's not a question, but it still opens you up to contemplation. I mean, the first place that my head went to when you said that was how much I despise multitasking. I, I only like to do singular focus things. Totally. Totally. It takes years to really learn the deleterious uh, effects of multitasking. But once you learn, you're just completely unwilling to turn the clock back and do it again. <laughs> yeah. You know? Can't do it. Won't do it. Can't do it. Won't do it. There's another page called Recipe for Heal. It says Recipe for Healing. This is one of my favorites. I see and stand in the pain. I observe it as energy. Facing page, it says, I release any contraction by expanding. I open. I release any judgments about the pain. These are the choices that help me heal. And there's a whole bunch of blank space there. Well, a lot to come out there. Lots yeah, to process. totally. No doubt. Totally. Yeah, well, I see, I see what you mean by not necessarily wanting to, or being ambivalent about marketing this directly or exclusively to young adults. Cause yeah, these are the questions that, that, um, inspire all of us that plague all of us in a way and, and uplift all of us when, when reflected upon. So, um, I wish you luck with figuring out how you want to handle that, but I'm sure that no matter what you title it or subtitle it, it will fall into the right hands. Yeah, no, I, I have all the faith and the, and the confidence. I just feel like, um, I feel like it's important for all of us right now to have reflection time. We don't have enough of it. We're filling all the spaces and it's nice for us to take a second. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and go from inner world to outer, outer world and how we can, use the benefits of our contemplation reflection to benefit others. Talk to us a little bit about the work that you're doing with Girls on Fire. What What is that um, organization and how are you involved? Um, this is my main sort of passion project and girlsonfireleaders.org was founded by a woman named Eileen Flanagan who's become a dear friend. She became committed to helping adolescent girls in two of the worst slums of Kenya and a couple of the surrounding rural areas to learn how to lead in their communities so that they can be the voices of change within their communities. Her work moved me. I met her first in one of my classes uh, at ABC back when I was teaching over there. And I don't know what it was about her. I just had to speak with her. I had to find her. And sure enough, what I ended up learning with her was that she had just come back from there. She was committing herself to creating opportunities for these girls to learn. That's actually girlsonfireleaders.com. 
just to be clear, girlsonfireleaders.com. She was committed to making sure that these girls got access, not just to leadership skills, but to experiences outside of their home turf, to camp, to education, to learning what their rights were. So many of these girls are being forced into childhood marriage. They're being forced into uh, female genital mutilation. These are real, real situations that we're looking at present day. She decided to create that, that chance for these girls. And so she trains the girls from ages six to 16 and above. And the impact since the first immersion trip in, I think it was December of 2014, she had 20 girls um, and they were at the time ages six to 13. And she gave these girls an opportunity to travel and experience the rest of their country outside of the Kaibara slum and immerse themselves in different cultures. And now they lead leadership workshops. They have community impact projects. They're, some of the girls are teaching meditation and yoga to the other girls and boys in their communities. They have uh, farm and team building, just all sorts of, they're using my book, Practice You, to learn themselves. There's one beautiful gal who is, her name is Makesh, And she is teaching the other girls how to meditate and how to learn themselves through a journaling practice. And she's so cool. It's insane. She's been doing that for now several years and her work has had a massive impact. Yeah. That's the ripple effect. I mean, that's, that's really when you've done something Mm -hmm. when not only is your direct outreach influencing people, but you're empowering others to spread the network, to, to widen the spider web. Exactly. Exactly. And the impact that they've had now, you know, they've created, it's not just for girls either. They've also created a a situation where boys are also learning. Um, They're leading girls on fire trainings, leadership trainings with boys also starting reading circles with them, beautification projects in and around the school and the slum, um, you know, teaching hygiene. These are things that, that needed to happen generated from those who live in that community, not from us. Right. That's the thing that I want to make clear is the reason why it really lit me up to be a part of this was, that the the initiatives are happening from within the community. It's not, this isn't our idea. Mm-hmm. What they find that they want to fix and heal is coming from them. So have you been, or are you working mostly remotely on this no, effort? I'm, I'm working remotely at this time, raising money and creating the, uh, some of the, some of the protocols slash, um, Curricula, I guess you could say, through my book. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'll definitely be going there in the future for sure. I can't wait. And Mikesh and I have a little uh, communication back and forth. So I, I love, love, love this woman. She's now, she's just getting older by the second, just like my son. And it's, it's a wonder to watch. Yeah. That will be a really special encounter when you meet in person for the first time. 
I literally can't even begin to find the words. When I see her and she sends me a video over my phone, I weep for an hour after that. I mean, she, she's, she's had a massive, uh, a real serious impact, that girl. And she's changing the lives of a lot of the other girls that she's been teaching now for several years. It's really amazing. Yeah. Really powerful stuff. And now the best part is that after all of that, we were able to raise, I was able to get a fund match from my company. They, doTERRA matched uh, a, a massive amount of money, $25,000 to, um, to create the camps for the girls for 2020. And now we have just solidified um, a work in progress where we're going to actually welcome the families and the children of the growers and harvesters of our pink pepper in Kenya into Girls on Fire leaders. So we're spreading our wings a little bit and receiving receiving the help that we need in order to do so right off the bat, which is a, a wonder in and of itself. Super cool. And, yeah. uh, and it's amazing and also inspiring to hear about how your various worlds have overlapped and, and collided and worked into synchronicity with one another. Yeah, it just happened. That, that just happened. I, I'm like, it's almost too soon to talk about it, but it, it really just came through <laughs> like a week and a half ago and I'm still incredulous and beaming about it. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. You, yeah. You've been with doTERRA for a long time now, right? I've been with doTERRA for almost seven, wait, hold on. Oh my God, almost seven years. It'll be seven years in May of 2020. And I've been active, you know, growing my business for the, probably the last five, let's say. And it's one of the so, most, one of the most satisfying things that I do with my time. So well, well before being involved with the Girls on Fire leaders. Well, the whole point of me starting with doTERRA in the first place was twofold. One, I lived for the oils, the oils that had a massive impact on my life. I was able uh -huh. to, um, I'm, I'm loath to use the word heal, but in my case, I was able to heal cystic acne using geranium oil, which is a very potent um, bunch of compounds that help with skin issues and support skin. Mm -hmm. um, I fell in love with all of the other oils and have been using them for 20 years now. But, but at that time, I was using them for, let's say, 10, 13 years or so loved them, was using them in my house for cleaning, you know, way before the whole like essential oils craze actually happened. Yeah. And what I wanted though, I wanted another business that would supplement my yoga teaching income because I could tell that the yoga teaching income was not going to allow me the latitude to be philanthropic, especially in yep. New York. Mm -hmm. And I wanted the means to do that. Philanthropy was to me a, a, a real high luxury, and I wanted I wanted in. I was watching, you know, I was teaching Christy Turlington, who started Every Mother Counts at that time, and you know, just watching who she blossomed into from the first moment that I met her to 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 now. Even what uh, what a what a hero she is! What what a what a giving intelligence she brings to this world 
and I wanted to just be like her. And mm-hmm. I thought, okay, so how am I, how am I going? I'm not a supermodel. <laughs> I'm a yoga teacher and maybe I'll write a book or two, but how am I going to actually earn uh, a substantial amount of money doing something that I love and which I believe. And doTERRA just came forward and I loved the oils. I knew that I could believe in the product. I know the sourcing is legitimate. I know that the testing is all of the highest integrity. Why don't I just try? And so despite all of my hesitation, all of my misperception about network marketing and direct marketing and all the stories that one has about those terrible companies in the 70s and the 80s that did all that terrible stuff, I saw something different was here and I went for it. I'm so glad that I did because the, the, my full dedication and devotion to this work has yielded the opportunity to be philanthropic, which is why when I met Eileen for the first time in my class and she said, this is what I'm doing. I said, I want to know you and I want to grow with you. And that was that the rest is history. Yeah. Uh, for, for the uninitiated, unfamiliar, what exactly, what is this business model that you're doing? Apart from explaining, you've already explained what the product is and why you believed in it so much, but how are you involved? So network marketing is, I feel it's the way of the future. It's a way to, let's say you have, you have business, which is doTERRA and you have the opportunity through doTERRA to create your own organization, selling the products that doTERRA creates. So I have my own organization. Everybody on my team has their own organization as well. And each of us benefits when we learn and teach. So the very nature of the business model demands that you are constantly in a state of learning and teaching. Those are the people that actually earn money. And those are the people that are able to grow substantial businesses for themselves. So now I've got over 40,000 households on my team all over the world, literally dozens of countries. And all of us together, I create a lot of learning um, materials for my team. All of us together are constantly learning and sharing what we, what we know and what we create together. And when I encourage someone else to create an account and grow their relationship to essential oils, to these, to these plant allies, if you will, I benefit then they go ahead and create this relationship. So their whole family benefits, their household benefits. They're getting a bunch of toxic products out of their house and they're generating perhaps some residual income for themselves. They all benefit. And then, wow, what if they invite another family near them to do the same? Then Mm -hmm. they definitely benefit. They create more income for themselves. And then the other family does the same thing. And really at the end of the day, when it comes to doTERRA specifically, I've never been a part of any other network marketing company, or it's also known direct marketing, multi-level marketing. It's all the same thing. Mm -hmm. What I know is that when I am efficient in sharing the information that I have, when I am efficient in empowering the other people on my team to go ahead and share the information that they have amassed using their oils and products, we all thrive and we can all start to be 
philanthropic, taking 10% or 15% of what I earn and giving it away is now a matter of course. It's the most beautiful feeling. And I can do that because of my alliance with doTERRA and with this business model, which was not happening as a yoga teacher. It was not happening when I was working in a corporate office in my early 20s. Yeah, I, I, I love everything that you just said. And I'll, I'll say that my takeaways from that were, one, if you know what your intention is, your, your guiding motivation, then you will have clear direction on how to proceed. Um, you, you knew that you wanted to create a life that afforded you the luxury of philanthropy. So you needed to set up something that could afford you that wealth. And secondly, I took away that success or whether it's monetary or, or otherwise is not a zero sum game and the rising tide can raise all ships. But I'd like to know what you would want to share as a main takeaway from your experience starting your business with doTERRA for the listeners. Like what, what was something that you learned, whether it was in the beginning or later on that you've really um, integrated into, into your career and your understanding of, of the business? I was just teaching my team today. We have a monthly office hours call with the entire team. And I was teaching them today that what I've come to understand is that our success depends only on one thing, which is connection. Now, if you, Henry, were to say for your work, the same for any yoga teacher, the same for my son in his studies, the same. If I make a solid connection, which requires, as I was teaching my team today, really good listening and really good questions, my team is always going to thrive. Because if I do that, I have one more person who feels heard and seen, who can now be welcomed into the world of these plants and how they can work in their life because I've listened really well and now I know exactly what they need or at least some ballpark of what they need. And they can go ahead and create that opportunity for somebody else. Those are real connections. I'm not talking about making a connection online and, you know, that's it. I don't even know you. I've never seen you before. I want to know exactly how I can serve you. And I do that one person at a time. And my dream and what's happening now is that my team does that for their future teammates as well. That I think is a recipe for success, no matter what you're doing. If you're playing rugby or you're a florist or you're a painter or you're someone's assistant how well are you connecting, listening, and serving? That's it. Well, it's a perfect parallel back to the Girls on Fire leaders. You you provide people with the the tools and resources to be able to share more education with others. And the chain of positive influence yeah. goes on from there. Exactly. Exactly. Well, this seems this seems like a a perfect time to wind things down. Great. I love that pos that positive message. So we'll wind it down with what I call the prana round. This is the nice. last few questions for you. It's six rapid fire questions. So please answer in minimum one word and maximum one sentence per question. Okay. Okay. 
All right. In one word, why do you practice yoga? Healing. What is your favorite yoga pose and why? Shavasana, yoga nidra is my medicine. It's the medicine. Mm-hmm. What is the single best cue or piece of advice that you've ever received from any of your teachers? Be a student until the very end. Rod Stryker. Recommend one book, either modern or ancient, for our audience. Of course, in addition to your own books, which will be linked in the show notes. No, I would say, well, the book that I've just finished reading is called The Overstory by Richard Powers. It's a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. And it's uh, it's very compelling. It teaches us all about the current state of affairs regarding the trees, clear cutting and other scenes, other situations. If you were going to go with a nonfiction, it's pretty random, but I'm going to go with this anyway. I'm reading MC Richard's book called Centering (laughs) in pottery, poetry, and the person. And there are so many gems in this book. I can't even begin to tell you. Pottery. Okay. Like centering the pot on the wheel while it's It's spinning. It's called centering. The Uh subtitle is in pottery, poetry, and the person. The author is M.C. Richards. Love it. Okay. Yep. Next question. Is yoga for everyone? Definitely. Okay. Last question for you, Elena. How can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your Dharma? ElenaBrower.com. Support me in my Dharma by being kind to your parents. <laughs> okay. Be kind to your parents. Yep. Awesome. And uh, we didn't we didn't get a chance to talk about this, but Elena also has her very own podcast called the Practice You Podcast. So if you like what she has to say, then be sure to check that out. Also, give it a subscribe. Mm, thank you. That's very sweet of you. I appreciate that. Well, Elena, it's been really nice to get to talk to you again. It's been a thank long time. You. Hopefully, yeah. it won't be so long before the next one. Yes. Thank you so much for your great work, Henry. I appreciate you. Dharma Talkers, I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And if you did, please share it. Take a screenshot, share it on Instagram, and tag me, at Henry Wins. I love hearing from you about the conversations that make an impact for you. We have the ability to shape the world through our thoughts, words, and conversation. So let's influence the collective consciousness together. All my gratitude to Rory Wagstaff of Ease of Mind Productions for keeping our audio crisp and operations smooth, and to Patrick Kiebzak of Momentology Music and Art for supplying the powerful soundtrack to these conversations. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and tune in to new episodes of Dharma Talk every Thursday. I'll speak to you next week, and until then, keep living your Dharma.